Those of you who are graduates of Children's Church, would you open your Bibles to Esther chapter 6, pretty please. Esther chapter 6 is where we're going to spend our time today. As always, I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning and to bring your Bible with you to church uh, and to keep it open the whole time so you can track through the chapter with us in Esther chapter 6. So great movies and great sporting events in great pro wrestling matches all have this one thing in common. There's always a reversal. If it's a movie, then at the last moment, the hero defeats the bad guy or the couple falls in love. The thing happens that you've been waiting on to happen. If it's a sporting event, then the underdog pulls off the victory in the last moment. If it's pro wrestling, the bad guy is about to win, but then the good guy beats him in a surprising way. We love great reversals. And here's something we're going to learn about in Esther chapter 6 today. God is the God of great reversals. Too many people approach God with this mindset as if he is a deity that we have to appease. And we appease him by doing good things, avoiding the bad things, trying to win him to our side. But he's not like that. He is the heavenly father who cleans the one who is dirty, mends the one who is broken, heals the one who is hurting, comforts the one who is grieving, forgives the one who is sinning. He is the God of reversals. And so far in our study of the book of Esther, we've had five chapters of unrelenting crisis escalation. Every chapter has been drama added to drama added to drama without any resolution to the conflict in the story. But God begins to change things in chapter 6. The story pivots, and for the first time, we begin to see God lifting the threat from His people. The good news for you and I is that God is still in the business of reversals. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to encourage you to experience God's great reversal for yourself and then to extend it to others. Esther chapter 6 shows us three characteristics of God's reversals. My hope is that we will learn from them and we will live them. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So just by way of reminder... Uh, there's been a threat made against all of God's people in the kingdom of Persia. They're to be wiped out on one particular day. Haman, the bad guy, has plotted the murder in the, or the public execution of Mordecai. And that brings us to chapter 6, verse 1. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, What honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, Nothing has been done for him. The king asked, Who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? 
Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. What does it look like when God reverses things? What does it look like when He changes them from hopeless to full of hope? Well, there are three characteristics of God's reversals in Esther chapter 6. I want to show them to you. The first is this. God's reversals come in ordinary ways. You've got to know that when God sets about reversing things, changing things, fixing them, all too often He does it in ordinary ways. Chapter 6 opens up with some terrifically boring details. The king couldn't sleep. And since he didn't have a TV, he asked that the book of his daily events be read to him. Now, it's okay to smile at this detail because it's as if the king is saying that the details of his life are so boring they will help put him back to sleep. So the king's readers hit the rewind button and they go back to read events that happened five years previously. We may have missed a couple of timestamps in the story, but the time between when Mordecai exposed the plot to kill the king to this sleepless night is at least five years. And so the reader goes back five years and begins to read of this event that's also recorded at the end of Esther chapter 2, where Mordecai overheard a plot to kill the king and reported it. He saved the king's life, but he was never properly rewarded. Now, Persian kings were known for their lavish rewards to those who did them well. It was especially important to reward those who saved your life in order to create a public policy that keeping the king alive was a good thing. And so, King Ahasuerus asked in verse 3, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? And his attendants tell him nothing has been done for him. This single sleepless night is the turning point in the entire book of Esther. The whole story hinges on chapter 6, verse 1. Up to that point, unrelenting crisis. After this point, total reversal. Complete, and not just the situation fixed, but God reverses everything that's been done against His people. This 
single sleepless night is the most important scene in the entire book. And everything changes because of it. You know, the king didn't have a bad dream. He didn't have a vision in the night. There was no visit from an angel. He just couldn't sleep. And why couldn't he sleep? Well, the story doesn't tell us. But that ambiguity leaves us with the impression that God is at work here. God is the one who causes a pagan king to have a sleepless night and thereby reverses all of the threats and all of the damage against his people. It's incredibly ordinary the way God delivers his people in this story. Now, if I were to tell you that in the week ahead, God's going to act on your behalf in some way and you need to be on the lookout for it, what would you expect? If you knew, like you're getting up tomorrow morning, going about your normal routine, and, and you think this could be the day that God acts or speaks or moves, does, I'm going to see it. What would you expect to see? Your expectations for something supernatural would be through the roof. Who knows, maybe, uh, maybe he splits the waters at Nantasket as you're there. Or, or maybe, I, you know, who knows, maybe there's a heavenly visitation, a, a, you know, a choir of angels descends above your house. Maybe a squirrel calls you by name and then gives you, a, who knows how God's going to do the amazing, incredible thing. We just have these expectations that if God's doing it, it's going to be massive and huge and miraculous and supernatural. And all the while you're looking for God in grand miracles, a friend shows up and says to you, hey, I need some help and I thought I would come to you. Or your boss emails you and says, your name came to mind for a special role in the organization. Or your kid comes to you and says, hey, I just I want to spend a little bit of time with you. And your response to all of them is, I can't do any of that because I'm waiting on God. How many times have we ignored God's still, small voice because we want Him to only speak in big, magnificent voices? But he's the God of the ordinary. He's the God who indwells the common, the simple things. It's the basic things where we meet the divine. How many times have we prayed for a miracle and the whole time we've been missing God in the ordinary? Maybe we don't need a miracle. Maybe we just need a sleepless night. Think about how beautifully ordinary the life and ministry of Jesus was. He taught us about the kingdom of God using common things like mustard seeds and wheat seeds or a wheat field ready for harvest or a wheat crop that's mixed with weeds. He talked about vines and vineyards and fig trees and doors and perfume and water and children with all these basic things. He wanted us to see God in the ordinary. So that you would drive down a road, be on your commute, interact with someone else, and you would know God is here. He's in this moment. And the miracles that he did were beautiful and amazing, but he performs these miracles using the most ordinary means. He cast out demons with a word. And he healed sickness with a touch. And he fed multitudes with a little boy's lunch. And then don't forget how incredibly ordinary his first advent was. We're about to celebrate it. He was born. How would you script God entering his creation? He's just born in poverty 
and weakness and powerlessness, God was born. How terribly, beautifully ordinary. So if God has always worked through ordinary ways, we might need to consider all the divine encounters we've had but we haven't recognized. How many times have we accused God of being distant or silent when He's been here the whole time, just not with a flash and a bang? God attends you through the counsel of friends, through the presence of people you love and who love you, through a Bible verse that comes to mind at the right time, or perhaps through a single line in yet another sermon. It's in very ordinary ways, beautiful ways that God cares for you. And if God has moved in your life through ordinary ways, don't you think He's also going to use you in the lives of others in ordinary ways? Don't underestimate the power and the providence of a kind word, a need met, a prayer offered, or love shown. God will use your ordinary ways to glorify Himself in the lives of others. That's how He brings about reversals. He brings them about in beautifully ordinary ways. There's a second characteristic of God's reversals on display in the story, and it's this. God's reversals make His enemies laughable. So it just so happens when the king needs advice on how to honor Mordecai, Haman is nearby. I don't know if you picked up on this pattern in the story. Um, King Ahasuerus is seemingly incapable of making his own decisions about anything. He's always looking for advice. What should I do with Vashti? How do I find a queen? What I, he's always looking for someone else to tell him what to do. He can't even figure out how to honor Mordecai properly. And so he asked, verse 4, who's in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is here standing in the court. Why do you think Haman's there? I mean, we know he's there because he wants to kill Mordecai. But on this night of all nights, the king is sleepless. The king needs advice. And Haman just comes strolling in. It's amazing how God works. Haman standing in the court, middle of verse 5. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered, and the king asked him, what should be done for the man that king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? I love it so much. Who does the king want to honor? He wants to honor Mordecai. Who does Haman think the king wants to honor? Haman, with a capital H. Haman doesn't miss a beat. He's got an answer ready to go. He's already been exalted in King Ahasuerus's court. He has the second most important position in the land. But now he thinks to himself, how can I be honored? And so he has an answer ready to go. The kind of honor he would like to receive, that man should wear clothing the king himself wore, ride a horse the king has ridden, put a little crown on the horse's head, and then parade that man through the city for everyone to honor him. Now, Haman is in dangerous territory here. To wear the king's clothes and to ride his horse and to receive the king's praises is to be considered almost equal with the king. Haman makes his recommendation, excited about what's going to come to him. And then the king responds in verse 10, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew. 
That is the punchline. This is the point where the original audience would have exploded in laughter as they imagined the look on Haman's face upon learning that he was the one who was going to honor Mordecai. Remember, he's in the court that morning to get permission to kill Mordecai, put him up on the gallows for everyone to see publicly. He wants this man dead. What an incredible, stunning reversal happens in just a moment. He goes from coming to see Mordecai killed, coming to be given orders to honor Mordecai in front of everyone. There are several places in the Bible where the enemies of God's people are described as laughable losers. The situations may not necessarily be comical, but the fate of God's enemies are certainly comical. And there's something, I think, about being an oppressed person that when the bad guy gets done in, you crack a smile. You think, yeah, it's time. Time for God's people to raise up. Time for the oppressors, the threat, those who threaten God's people to be put down. A couple of examples in the Bible. In Judges chapter 3, Ehud, the left-handed deliverer of God's people, plunges his dagger into the enormous belly of the evil king Eglon, and we're told in graphic detail that the things on the inside come to the outside. It's a little funny when you read it, especially if you're a junior high boy. Another example, Daniel chapter 5. The evil king Belshazzar sees God's handwriting on a wall, and he's so terrified he loses control of a vital function. It's hilarious when you think of this evil king with all the power and all the might and all the wealth, and he loses control of himself at a simple act of God. Look, the enemies of God's people may have thrones and power and weapons and wealth and leverage, but every single one of them is a joke. The enemies of God's people come in many shapes and sizes. Our enemies can take the shape of people like Haman, who hate God and his people and want to destroy them. But we also face enemies of different shapes. These enemies are the manifestations of living in a world broken by sin. So it could be a diagnosis, a mental health concern, an addiction, broken relationships, destructive choices, racism, and much, much more. But God's people approach these things and understand these enemies in a way different than everyone else does. A few weeks ago, we spent a Sunday learning from the woman of valor in Proverbs 31. And in Proverbs 31, verse 25, describes this woman this way. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she can laugh at the days to come. And so it is for all of God's people. We can look to the future, not with a sense of panic or dread, but with unshakable joy because Christ is alive and coming again. His victory is true and certain. His strength is unmatched. His power is infinite. His love is immeasurable. So who or what can stand against him? And if there's no one and nothing that can stand against God, can't his church also expect to stand with him? And although we face situations that are frightening, we don't need to be afraid. And although we often face situations without resolution, we don't need to panic. We know that God is setting all things right. And because of this, every enemy is laughable. Haman's not so scary. 
Ahasuerus, not so scary. That thing you dread, not so scary. When you see your powerful, loving, almighty Savior God on your side. So God's reversals come in ordinary ways. God's reversals make His enemies laughable. Third and finally, God's reversals exalt His children. So in verse 11, Haman clothed Mordecai. He brought the king's horse to Mordecai. And then Haman was the one who acted as the herald, leading Mordecai through the city and calling people to honor him. Haman thought he's going to see Mordecai publicly executed, and instead he is responsible for seeing Mordecai publicly honored. It was his plan, and he's the one that sets it into motion. But the reversal doesn't just stop with Mordecai being honored. Did you see what happened when Haman returned home? Look at verse 13 with me. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you've begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. So Haman's people tell him that this event cannot be by accident. Their theology, surprisingly sharp in this moment, There's something else at work, and it has something to do with Mordecai being Jewish. And they're right. Something else or someone else is at work here. They can't articulate who it is that's at work, but they know what the outcome will be. Haman's going down. They know this for sure. Now, it's important for you and I to recognize that God's kingdom operates with different definitions of power and honor than the world does. According to worldly standards, Haman has everything. The man's an incredible success. He has wealth. He has a big family. He has friends and advisors. He has power and position. He has everything the world would say makes a person great. But he's a laughable loser in this story. And the honor goes to the man who had a death sentence on his head. No power, no leverage, no wealth, no palace, no nothing. His only family member has been taken into the palace herself. Mordecai has nothing, and yet he's the one in the story who's granted the honor. And this is the way it is for God's people at all times. Jesus himself articulated this different approach to shame and honor. In Matthew chapter 5, in the passage known as the Beatitudes, Jesus described those who are blessed in God's kingdom. And again, he doesn't mention those with power or influence or titles or accumulation or armies. He said you're blessed if you're poor in spirit, if you mourn, if you're humble, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're merciful, if you are pure in heart. If you are a peacemaker, if you are persecuted, those characteristics were not prized in the first century, and they're still not prized in the 21st century, but these are the people blessed by Christ, honored by Christ. It's easy to feel overlooked. Mordecai was overlooked for his good deed for the king. And Haman was advanced and promoted when Mordecai was forgotten about. It's easy for you and I to feel overlooked and unseen in the practice of our faith. But God sees. God knows. 
And he gives grace to the humble, and you will know his smile for all eternity. He does not forget his children. The same way a mother could never forget her own child, so God never forgets you. So what does it look like for God to honor you? Well, it's a change in relationship. You go from rebel to child. And it's a change in judgment. You go from guilty in sin to blameless in holiness. It's a change in eternity, from eternally separated from God to eternally present with Him, the one to whom all glory and honor is due. God is ultimately utterly victorious, and so are His children with Him. All honor is given to Him, but He sees that He lifts the weak and the small and exalts them with Him. And so this morning, and we've learned a lot from Esther chapter 6 about God's great reversals. His reversals come in ordinary ways. They happen on laughable enemies. And His reversals exalt His children. He's the God of reversals. Joy, or grief to joy, ashes to beauty, last to first, death to life. Do you live before Him knowing that that's the kind of God He is and that's the kind of work He's doing in your life? There are alternatives. You might think of Him as the God who is absent or the God who is struggling or the God who's silent or the God who's feeble. It could be you know He's the God of reversals and you have sin you need to step away from, but you push Him away out of fear or a love for the flesh or whatever the thing is. We keep the reversal at bay. What a tragedy to belong to the God of reversals, but to live as if He's been defeated. Or to live as if I can do without that kindness. So how does this reality about God impact our day-to-day lives? Well, I would say this. What we need to do is we need to apply God's grand reversal to our own challenges. What's the grand Reversal. What do I mean? I mean, there is this one grand story, start to finish, in which God changes everything. That story starts with the sin of mankind, and the great pivot point of that story is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything in history pivots on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from that point to a date in the future when the sky splits open and the trumpet sounds and Christ returns, God is working to reverse all things until ultimately, finally, once and for all, everything is set right. The book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 describes it this way. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So with Christ as your Savior, you will see this new creation happen. That's the grand reversal. And that's what we experience when we come to Him and trust Him to be our Savior, to forgive us for our sin and bring us from death to life. That grand reversal defines the way we live. And so when Christ has taken you from death to life, then every other challenge in your life is shaped by that experience. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who's going to stand against the Lord? Who's going to be successful against him or against his church? There's no one. And so we want to take that grand reversal and apply it to our own challenges. 
maybe that challenges sin in your life. The book of Romans tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, leads us to this reversal. And so, brother and sister, you would take this grand reversal. God has done this work, killing my sin, giving me life, and in him I find the power to repent from my sin once again and to step forward with him in faith. It could be some crisis you're facing. Conflict is unresolved. But you know the grand narrative, how it all ends. Victory is certain and assured. And when I take that and apply it to my challenge, my panic can subside and fear doesn't drive the bus anymore. And though I don't know the outcome, I don't know how God's going to do it, I know what He can do and I'm going to trust Him no matter what. I'm going to walk with Him in resolute faith. I'm going to persevere and hold to Him even though the crisis doesn't make sense, it seems unfair, and I want it to be done. He's the God who holds us all the way through. And then, having applied this to our lives, we make another pivot, and we begin to extend this hope, this reversal to the people around us. In ordinary ways, you'll point them to Jesus. They'll see how amazing He is and how laughable their little gods are. Paul did this very thing in Acts chapter 17. He told a group of people in the city of Athens about the God they did not know. He told them of the great pivot point in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he compelled them to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus. What was the result? Some people ridiculed Paul, but Acts 17.34 tells us some people joined him and believed. That's another beautiful reversal, a rescue no less dramatic than Mordecai's. What a treasure to belong to the God of reversals. Jesus said in Revelation 21.5, look, I am making everything new. May we be a people who not only experience the new creation, but who participate in it by holding out the words of life. Now, if you're not a Christian, I want to talk to you for just a moment. Jesus once used this reversal logic when describing what it means to be his follower. How can someone know that they're a disciple of Jesus? In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. There's that reversal logic. If I try to save my life, I'll lose it, but if I lose my life, I'll find it because of Christ? How does that make sense? Well, if I try to save myself by pleading my own case before God, look how good I've been and how bad I have not been. And look at all of the good intentions I've had and all the ways I've been kind. I, I have zero carbon footprint on this planet. I'm good to animals. I'm a patriot. I'm, I'm, I'm politically involved. I give to charities. I care for people. I'm a good... Look at all these things I've done. If you try to save your life in that way, you're going to lose it. Because all of that, apart from Jesus Christ, condemns you. That argument does not settle your case before God except to say you are condemned. Your sin separates you from Him eternally. And this whole argument that we weave in an attempt to save our lives will not do away with the sin. It only intensifies the judgment that it brings. 
But if you lose your life for the cause of Christ, you'll find it. So if I take all of this, all, all, all of who I have been and all the mistakes, all my guilt, all my sin, all the shame that I carry with me, and all the things I would plead in my favor, if I'll just set them aside and turn my whole heart and life to Jesus Christ, He'll forgive you. He'll give you new life from death to life. Beauty for ashes. He makes you His child and He holds you forever and ever. You find life when He gives it. Jesus is the only one who can do this. He alone is God who took on flesh. He is God who died on the cross in your place for your sin. He's perfectly sinless because He's God. But he died for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. So he, here's this ultimate reversal. He conquered death. And he alone is the one who can give life. And he promises that if you'll trust in him, he'll do that. He loves you so much. Every action he's done on your behalf has been motivated by love. And today he invites you to quit trying to piece together a life that's full of shame and guilt and weakness and death and to receive from him eternal abundant life when you make him your lord and savior i'd love to talk to you about that when our service is done today myself or one of the pastors or someone that you're here with i wouldn't want to leave this building without knowing that i have life in jesus christ and this is the day that'll happen when you say yes to him let's pray together Father, it's amazing the ways you work. We've scripted it all wrong. Oh, we think you're only going to work if, if things happen according to our plan in grand ways. We look at power structures and we think if, if, if you're not in that thing or, or that's surely going to be the way that you're going to work, we're, we're so wrong. It's in a sleepless night with a pagan king and his pagan advisor that you reverse the course of destruction for your people. And it's in countless other simple, ordinary, anonymous, unseen ways that you speak and work and move on our behalf. Think about my own faith story. My coming to faith as a teenager happened through incredibly ordinary ways. It was ordinary things that put me in front of the gospel. God, you did all of that. I praise you for it. So for my brothers and sisters this morning, Father, give us the strength that comes from belonging to you, the God who is setting all things right. We have crisis and hurt and things that we find to be unfair that dominate our thinking. God, I pray we would approach them through the lens of your might with an understanding of your nearness and your goodness. Help us to laugh at the days to come so secure in you that we don't walk in fear or panic anymore. God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Let this be the day that they find life by turning to Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.